All right, everybody, welcome back to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am very excited today because I have a longtime chum, friend, and uh, classmate uh, from college, a professional and creative connoisseur in her own right. What's up? Uh, we have Ms. Lily Bui here, a graduate of the venerable UC Irvine, and now recently also the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in, in what discipline? In urban studies and planning, and I specialized in disaster risk reduction on islands. That's right. So if you're running into a sticky situation and you're not sure where to go, wouldn't hurt to shoot her a tweet and figure out what your next steps could be. Also, if you end <laughs> up going oceanbound, she's also a stellar surfer and longboarder on the land. <laughs> so I'm very excited to have her here uh, to be on this coast and to have this conversation. We're going to be covering all different topics such as what you did in your graduate career, how on earth you got there from UC, UC Irvine. I. And uh, I have known you for, I believe, a little over 10 years now that it's 2020. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's, let's get into the mix of it. Why on earth would you decide to go to the East Coast and devote many, many years of your life to such a very specific thing like that? That is a question that I have asked myself a lot, and also my parents have probably given me a hard time about over the years. Fair enough. Um, I would really love to make UCI an anchor point, Please. given that we're sitting here on campus in KUCI's lovely radio station. Absolutely. Um, I won't say my journey started here, but I think it's a good place to start this story, simply because I remember my time at UCI being kind of a confusing one hmm. in the sense that I was given a lot of opportunities to discover what it is I wanted to do. And then my answer at the end of it was everything. Yep. And I, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only person who struggled with this, but um, it was particularly difficult for me um, to figure out what my purpose was after I graduated um, mm. because I still felt like I hadn't found that one thing and I felt like other people around me maybe did or at least they were headed in one direction for themselves and it just felt as though I wanted to go in them all and since I was just one person I I couldn't I couldn't split myself into you know five different people and do all the things that I wanted to do. Um, I'm being very vague, but just to give you some concrete ex examples, you know, like during my time at UCI, I realized I loved hip hop dance. I realized I loved making music and writing original songs. I realized I loved anthropology um, and research in the social sciences. I realized I loved policy and social justice and advocacy, um, as well as just kind of. I don't know, like just trying out a lot of different things at my leisure. And it felt really scary that graduating from college meant that that kind of had to come to a close where you become this professional individual. And what I ended up doing was joining the UCDC program. Um, and I did an internship with then Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez in Washington, DC, as you know, hi. Um, and after doing a three-month stint there, I realized, you know, maybe being on Capitol Hill isn't for me. Mm -hmm. I felt like it was a great experience, and I learned a lot about policy um, in the policy world in D.C., but it still wasn't giving me that feeling of, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, and I guess I wanted to hear that voice in my head, but I still had it. Mm. Um, 
And I'll preface by saying that this was the beginning of me taking the very long way around to being comfortable being who I was. And part of being who I am is having to do almost everything that I feel passionate about. That's fair. Um, but one at a time. Right. So after my experience on Capitol Hill, I joined AmeriCorps. And I served for one year as a community organizer with the Asian Pacific American Legal Resource Center, or Apple Rock. Um, and that was extremely rewarding, but paid close to nothing. Yep. Um, I remember eating pickles for dinner um, and living on a very tight budget while still questioning, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? Sure. It was a very inspiring time to be in D.C. because Obama was president and a lot of young people were excited about that, myself included. Um, but I, I still just wasn't sure. Um, and part of coping with that was me sitting in a room by myself writing a lot of songs. Um, and I, long story short, met a bunch of musicians that recorded an album with me. And I thought, well, I'm going to do this for now after my AmeriCorps stint ended. And I ended up you know, becoming a musician professionally for a couple of years where I had a band and we performed and did a couple albums and we, you know, played shows up and down the coast on the west side of the States. And then I would just book gigs wherever I could as a solo performer. Mm -hmm. um, and then that led me to this um, idea that because I understood audio production that maybe a good next step for me might be public radio right. um, and at this point in time I was just kind of grabbing for anything that seemed interesting and I I applied to a bunch of internships not knowing if I'd hear back from any of them um, and WBEZ Chicago took a, a chance on me and hired me as an intern for a summer um, and I helped uh, produce some radio shows for the station and then bounced around to different jobs and landed in Boston at WGBH um, and worked for Public Radio Exchange. And while I was enjoying the public radio life, I ended up, you know, participating in a bunch of different citizen science projects. Ended up realizing I still had all these critical questions I hadn't answered yet. Right. So, like, this pattern is that, like, I bounced around and, you know, from one perspective, had zero focus professionally <laughs> and had no idea what I wanted to do, but yeah. also um, was gaining a very diverse set of skills along the way. Um, but then here's where I kind of realized, well, I'm getting... I'm getting a really nice view of things from the ground um, and being in the thick of things, but it I was starting to reach a point where I had some more critical questions, more high-level questions that I wanted to answer from a research perspective. Um, and I'd heard about a fantastic graduate program from MIT called Comparative Media Studies. Um, applied to that. First year, I didn't get in. Um, and we can talk about that if you'd like. Yeah. Um, and then the second time I applied, I did get in. And kind of from there, I took this media background and a policy background that I had, um, as well as, you know, interest in social sciences, which I had from UCI, and crafted this career for myself that focused on how to look at risk communication during disasters. 
Um, and that's what I ended up doing my PhD in. And we can go a little deeper into any of that that you'd like. But I think the takeaway that I'd love to leave people with, especially if anyone is struggling with like feeling like they don't know what they want out of life. Right. Um, there's no there's no answer that you have to come up with except for what you want to do right now. Yes. And everyone is on their own journey. Um, I don't think mine is a perfect one by any means. I think it's still in progress. Um, but had I not felt a little lost, I don't think I would have appreciated the aha moments that just led me to the next thing. Um, and I advocate for, you know, sitting in your discomfort for a little bit um, to remain challenged um, and to be able to have that empathy for others who might also be finding their way. I find the most valuable conversations that I've had um, involve me being able to share very, very vulnerably that I really had no idea what I was doing. And in some ways, I still don't. Um, but that the intent to continue doing good and to serve others and fulfill yourself at the same time, um, I think those are the the life lessons that I've kind of gained from this past decade of wandering around professionally and personally. I appreciate you sharing that. You know, let's let's rewind the clock a little bit. Let's go back to those kind of seminal years in college because, you know, to give the audience a little bit of context, you know, Fergie was having a moment. She had <laughs> split off from the Black Eyed Peas. Uh, Fergalicious Fergie. was dominating the airwaves. Uh, Flo Rida and Pitbull were just little pups. Uh, hitting the airwaves and Lil John was still dominating in the moment. In fact, around this time in college, uh, the EDM behemoth Steve Aoki was still willing to perform at small gigs. In fact, I saw him perform right by his inheritance sick, a Benihana right around the corner from the school, <laughs> and you could get in for 10 bucks. And he did not throw cake or anything else because we only got in for 10 bucks. So, you know, I think... The, although you did a very eloquent and concise job of describing your pathway leading up to this point, I think if I can add some more texture to this is from the very moment that I met you, there was never a time where I could could really pinpoint where you weren't really giving it your all, even if you quote unquote, I'm, I'm quoting with my hands since you can't see them, <laughs> he uh, is that, you didn't, that you didn't know what you wanted, at least in that moment, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I recall with the dancing stuff, you didn't just dance, right? You decided to take on a leadership role. And it's not because you felt like, you know, I'm the best thing since sliced bread, but you saw... I definitely wasn't. <laughs> you saw, but you saw a need and you saw a group of people that wanted to belong and you and your friend created a real sense of community, right? And You're that... you me cry high. No, but, that, but then that, that kind of carries over to your, your internship with the congresswoman. So to give context, I ended up working for that same congresswoman through a reference call from her, and I met this same gentleman who is very much kind of like a cartoon version of what you see <laughs> in like a was it Family Circus, Doonesbury, Garfield, Dilbert, whatever. So th yeah, this guy was a character. There were a lot of characters in this office, and um, I recall when I was talking to you about that, you were really trying to help me uh, – set my expectations because mm -hmm. it was literally an exercise of purgatory just sitting in the front <laughs> uh, people don't know this and look i'm not going to put you on blast larry flint but stop sending porn magazines to every <laughs> california congressman we don't want that shit people come in the office for a tour of the capitol building we don't want to see that manila envelope 
with that porn <laughs> mag. Do it a different way. Send a tweet. DM your congressperson. Don't waste money on print. Don't send that shit to the congressional office, please. Save the trees. That's my PSA for the day. Hashtag climate change. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I recall when I got there, I had no idea what to expect. I was very homesick. You were the only person that I knew on that coast. My roommate was uh, a very lovely guy working somewhere in national security to the point where I had no idea where he was at <laughs> most of the time. When he was home, I was watching um, bootlegged uh, episodes of Mad Men. He was watching his telenovelas. We went out for hot wings a few times. Aside from that, everybody was just doing their thing. And then I was really doing a very poor method acting version of John Hamm's character in <laughs> Mad Men. Uh, you know, getting haircuts from guys that didn't know how to cut Asian hair, getting suits tailored by guys that only tailored suits for like 80 year old men. Mm -hmm. uh, Yelp was very early at that moment. So those referrals, those referrals back then were terrible. They were not accurate at all. Um, I ended up, I think I got the Janet Reno haircut at some <laughs> point. It was not good. Um, but I, I recall, you know, coming into this space where this is supposed to be the epicenter of power. This is the epicenter of democracy and influence. Mm -hmm. And then you're just getting called after call after call after call of angry people who watch C-SPAN and then they don't even realize that they're calling somebody that doesn't even represent them. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, it'd be like someone from yep. Montana calling the, wrong the representative of Garden Grove in Anaheim. <laughs> makes no damn sense. And then after you sort all the mail and you do all the stuff, they finally let you do a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And that's giving tours of the Capitol building. Yep. And then you realize some of the farce behind that too. Like the, do you remember the signature machines? Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> so it's like a hundred of these people are behind this thing. And then you walk, and then only certain people have a signature machine. Mm -hmm. Some people just have an envelope mm -hmm. and then you just trace over it. Just like you have to trace over, I don't know if you did this, but I just certainly did it. Sorry about this, mom, but like you copy over an old signature so you don't actually have to show someone you got a bad grade. <laughs> uh, but it's the same shit at the, at the epicenter of power. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'll cut a long story short, I recall seeing you perform at those uh, different venues when you were living out in Maryland. And I even recall one story you mentioning where you had to burn down your chair <laughs> because you got snowed in. So, the, you know, these experiences, although it may seem like a straight line when you talk about it after the fact, they're hardly straight lines. Yeah, and I think it's better that way, honestly. Right. Um, it's never comfortable when you're in it, especially when you're at a point in your life where you feel like you should be figuring things out. Or maybe it was just me telling myself that exactly. I needed to. You know, it's just yeah. that voice that I had in my own head. But looking back, I wouldn't trade any of those things for the world like that. That winter in particular, where we had to break down our furniture and burn it because the power went out and the plows were not coming down the road. And I was stuck with two of my best girlfriends at the time trying to figure out if we would survive, took everything in the fridge and put it in the snow so it would stay cold and we would have at least milk and cheese. <laughs> there you go. The toilet freezing over because it was so damn cold. Like That's that right. is just... Those are great stories, and had I not been wandering, and I had not been, and had I not been lost, I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't have shared those very memorable moments together um, with the people that I connected with at the time. And I think that's really just it. Like, as hippy dippy as it sounds, one of my favorite quotes is from Ramdas uh, from the Be Here Now book, which is that we're all just walking each other home. Right. 
And I, th- I really think that's the point. Like you meet people or you have encounters that are supposed to, you know, offer comfort to others and hopefully others offer comfort to you because um, we're all headed towards the same place, six feet under or, you know, as a pile of ashes scattered somewhere or, you know, you know, we're all we all have that common denominator of the fact that we're victims of entropy at the end of the day. And what are you going to do with this time? And I feel as though my experiences have been richer because I've let myself be a little lost. I I would definitely agree. And I don't think that you went through any one of these experiences completely alone. You've always had a very strong community made up of your friends, your family. Um, you've loved, you've lost, um, you've you've been through a lot of those things. I could say I've I've been through a few chapters myself. And I think you hit upon something as you're recounting your life experience up until now, which is uh, allowing yourself to feel lost seems even scarier to do in 2020. Because not mm-hmm. only do you have to do the work of actually living a life, but now you need to document it and make it seem really great and ha- essentially have a 24-hour paparazzi following you around and... Mm-hmm. and tuning, editing, angling, you know, styling everything that's happening. What what keeps you grounded to the point where you don't feel like you have to, you know, make it seem like everything's put together in moments where you don't have it all put together? Hmm. I think the best practice that I've been trying to implement is to simply be honest. Hmm. I mean, I <clears throat> we're talking about social media, right? Yeah. So you and I have talked about social media a lot. Like yeah. almost the entire time we've known each other because we went we went to college when Facebook blew up and yeah. was finding its own, you know, finding its own, I won't say soul because I don't know that Facebook really has a soul. No, it was like a cool treehouse yeah. that got really big. And then now this treehouse is dictating world power, which is <laughs> fucking crazy. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's nuts. But yeah. so we've talked about like how much do you share? How much don't you share? That's like right. what's the point? Yeah. Right. And, you know, like you're a natural storyteller. And so I think there were points where you couldn't help yourself and you wanted to share because it's a form of expression to oh, yeah. post and share. But at the same time, like, what does privacy mean? And like, what what does it mean to, you know, have things that are preserved solely for you and to be made special simply by the fact that they belong to just you and one other person or, you know, whatever group of people and That's don't right. have to be online in some server forever and ever and ever. Yeah. Um, but I think to, to get to your, your point about, you know, this artifice that we put up and in some ways um, kind of force ourselves to perform an ideal life that others can kind of look look in on through social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Right. Um, and I think a lot of us are coming around to realizing that not everything that you see on the surface is what is happening on the ground. Right. Um, but then people aren't honest about it to the point where you actually get that because yes. you only see the good parts, right? That's right. And I think for me, especially in the last couple of years, I've gone through a pretty hard time, like from a, an emotional standpoint, mental health standpoint. Um, doing a PhD is really hard and it makes you feel really inadequate at times. Mm. I've gone through heartbreaks um, and loved and lost, like you said. Um, and not all of it makes it onto social media. Some of it in part is because of privacy, but um, I've tried to make it a better practice of 
sharing when I am feeling a little vulnerable. Um, not and it's hard to frame it where you're like where you don't end up coming off as like some influencer who who writes like really like <laughs> on the surface like stuff like yeah hashtag right. blessed or I don't know like some inspirational quote with a picture that has nothing to do with what you're saying but like I'm just thinking of a couple times where you know like I went through something hard and you know I'll, I'll say just that yeah and kind of offer what I'm reflecting on at the moment um not to be on a soapbox but simply to say like you know, like if you have any good vibes, send them my way. Yeah. And if you're going through something too, you're not alone. Right. And I think sometimes that's enough. So finding that balance is hard, but like I, I think that it's hard to, to figure out how to, to be completely honest and vulnerable without feeling like you might bring others down. Um, especially if like me, you try to be a positive person for others as well as for yourself. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. What do you think about it? You know, what's, just, what's your journey through? <laughs> um, you know, I, f- I just listened to two books of the past couple of weeks. I finished. I find that I don't like to read as much as I, as people would think that I like to read because I, you know, I've written for a living and done other things. But, you know, audiobooks I really enjoy. It's mm-hmm. probably why I enjoy doing this podcast and mm-hmm. having those types of conversations and documenting that way. But I finished Cal Newport's uh, Digital Minimalism. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you heard of that. Mm. I've heard of the concept. And then uh, I finished Brene Brown's Dare to Lead. Yeah, yeah, so. definitely. And so, you know. Welcome with, to the cult. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> with that with that in mind, you know, we we fostered a lot of our friendship through electronic communication, text mm-hmm. message. Uh, you even read some of my stuff when I was putting it on Blogger. Yeah. A lot Tilti- of really. Tilting at the windmills. Tilting at windmills. At a windmills. lot of. Uh, a lot of spoken word raps, and that was like an yeah, evolution of what I was awesome. doing on my Zanga before that. I had a Zanga too, you Star know, Sailor XM. Uh, X, Do not look that up. X, oh, it was X20 Cloud 02X, because <laughs> I love playing that game, Final Fantasy Seven. So anyway, you know, from spoken word raps to this and that, and then doing spoken word performances in college, we were both part of the same kind of student culture organization for uh, Vietnamese American students, among many other groups we were all part of. And, you know, I I wouldn't know a lot of people if I didn't jump on the Facebook train. I wouldn't have fostered or maintained some friendships that I still have to this day if I didn't do the back and forth message on MySpace. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have, you know, the, the same types of now, this small kind of catalog of messages of people that take the time to listen to these conversations. And, you know, they start from what seem like very banal conversations and then evolve into something kind of like a little, a pearl of, of value and appreciation that I really enjoy. So with that being said, I, I struggle and I do marketing for a living and I manage social media accounts for numerous entities, not only for a university, but I help people out on the side too. And I still feel conflicted sometimes because to your point, you know, if there's a death in the family, I don't, myself, I'm not going to judge anybody else, but if I'm going through it, there's something that doesn't quite feel right for me to, you know, choose a photo where I, where I look really good and then do hashtag so blessed and then I'm still grieving, right? I'm not yeah. saying it's inherently wrong to talk about those things, but I think for right. myself, I've struggled because I am very pensive mm-hmm. and I am very uh, emotionally driven. And I think to 
share those experiences without giving it its due process is what I struggle with. Mm -hmm. And I think when I see people more open, it's not that I'm judging them, but I think if I'm, if I'm being very honest, I, I'm a little envious. I'm a little envious that mm -hmm. they can be so open mm -hmm. and just allow themselves to process almost in public, mm -hmm. right? And that is a that is not something that I'm capable of. So, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm if I'm coming to terms with it, I think the folks that I see who do post often and get a lot of engagement and are able to kind of build a community around them. I think it's because I've I've been envious of that because I've mm. I'm trying to figure out how to embrace this moment that we're in where it's not a, really an option to mm. have these things anymore and to to at least be somehow interacting with it. But it's still a, it's still an exercise for me. It's still a learning curve about yeah. exactly where does where does all of my life fit in this larger kind of zeitgeist that we're all a part of right now. Mm. What does public mean to you, though? Because I think that's a, that's kind of the bigger question, right? Like, yeah. where, what's that line between public and private now? Where, yeah. you know, even if you're sharing with friends and you post nothing online and there's no digital footprint, that's still a public sort of processing. Anything that's, that's right. kind of outside of you yeah. could be considered public space. Totally. Um, and and I get what you're saying, and thank you for sharing that. It's kind of the first time that we've talked about it in this decade of, decade of our lives yeah. um, where yeah. we can kind of self-reflect and understand what, you know, caused us to feel certain reactions when we were younger. Totally. Um, I remember you really hating social media. Oh, I hated it because of a lot of my own fears. Right? <laughs> like I, I attempted. No, but that's, yeah. that's, we're at a stage in our lives where we, we can see that now. Totally. Like, that's right. I was that way because I was afraid, not because the thing itself was stupid or unworthy or yeah. whatever. It, it wasn't crawling out the TV <laughs> yeah. and dragging me in and making me do things I didn't want to do. It was just, yeah. I, I fundamentally didn't know what to do with it. You know what I think about is that, okay, so I processed a lot publicly, right? And yeah. I remember a lot of people doing that and I just kind of took to it and followed suit with a lot of our peers. Right. Um, and later on in life, I kind of looked back and it was like, delete, 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 delete. <laughs> so there's the other side of that. But yeah. um, if I think about why, you know, there was such an impulse to just write like, Lily Bowie is watching a movie right now and just sharing little things like that, I think it comes from, at least for me, a place of hoping that I still matter mm -hmm. um, and this insecurity that I might not. And I think that might ring true for other people as well. And, you know, like when you're at that stage in your life where you're still trying to figure out who you are, and I'm speaking personally, um, and not quite having an answer for yourself right. you kind of just want to like put something else out in the world that's like I'm still still here or like here's who I am right now and yeah. here's what I'm thinking yeah. I'm still alive I still matter and um, it comes from that fear on the other side of it that you might not and so yeah. you want to keep making sure that you still do yeah. and that someone else still cares um, whether it's someone who comments or likes or or whatever interacts with your post yeah um, it's kind of silly to to frame it that way, but I think it it's still true in many respects. Hmm. Um, but at the same time, your self-worth isn't built up of how many reactions you get from other people. Right. I think part of my own personal growth has come from mattering to me and yes. having that be sufficient. Yes. Um, and doing things that fulfill me instead of doing things to be validated by other people. 
And it's a great point. And I think that comes with time. I think it comes with age and a lot of gray hairs and, you know, learning the hard way. But yeah. that's kind of my my view back on my early 20s, let's say. Yeah, I, I definitely think a lot of it comes with age. And, and, you know, for all the young folks out there, we're not saying we're smarter. We've just been on fucking earth for longer. And so the people <laughs> exactly. that are twice as old as us are twice as age-wise because they've just been around fucking longer to make more mistakes yeah. and to, to repeat mistakes and to learn from them and to not understand their patterns and to not or actually do the work, uh, whether you go to the therapy, you have a spiritual practice, you play music, you do different things. Um, I, I think that's part of where the reflection comes from. You know, I think at this point in my life, I've been adjusting my own lifestyle a little bit over the past two months and exercising a little bit more, being a little bit more mindful of my health. You know, you have your physical every year and your doctor's telling you you have like the cholesterol of somebody much older because... Is that what happens to you? All that fried chicken skin and Popeyes and all that stuff I joke <laughs> about. Like, I know my metabolism slowed down a long time ago, but you you don't realize your insights are just as important as the outside, right? It's not I just I drink so about, much more water now. Right? <laughs> Staying hydrated, just basic stuff. And, you know, for me, being able to look in the mirror... And, you know, you weigh yourself in the morning or you look at yourself after you get out of the shower and just, like, oh, I'm doing good for myself. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to document my before after every day. Mm -hmm. I don't even need to show a public version of my before after. It's for me. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that's very tough um, to do when you feel this pressure. Yeah. And I think me being a person who does do communications and marketing for a living, I feel added pressure because... I almost have to build myself up as a brand first for other people to take what I do seriously. And now my perspective is shifting where I don't necessarily feel like I have to play it that exact same way. I just need to figure out how to make it work and to tell a story in a way that makes it feel genuine in terms of the practice and the expertise that I have and deliver it in a way that I feel is novel. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how I can participate in this larger social media digital world while also not forsaking my values at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've learned, you know, after being a part of this whole thing for, I've been part of social networks since middle school, mm -hmm. you know? So with half of my life being in this digital space, I think I'm finally figuring out how to reach that equilibrium that feels right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's still in flux. Totally. It's gonna change even Absolutely. more. Like yeah. when my parents got on Facebook and then when, you know, my older relatives started getting on Facebook, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So it's this reached is a moment. Absolutely. And it's still changing. I mean, if you just broadcast a little bit more into the future, forecast rather, yeah. just thinking about people who will be working in digital archives in the future, trying to reverse engineer all these filters that we put on our photos to like get to the original Ooh. raw file to understand yeah. what people looked like in 2020. Oh my you God. know, just think about that, right? Like yeah. so much of our media is going to be on servers and, you know, we've moved away from tangible photographs. Like what is that going to look like? You know, what are family albums going to be stored as 50 years from now? Yeah. And, you know, the landscape is changing so quickly because technology is changing and completely agree the culture is going to change along along with it. That's um, right. Yep. 
So lots of scary stuff. Lots of scary stuff. And, you know, I think going back to, you know, what defines what we do and how we do it, how do you feel like your identity as, you know, as a, as a woman, as a child of refugees, as a person who grew up in California, how has that informed your path up until this point? Hmm. Lots of layers to that question. I think that since we're talking about, you know, last decade, this decade, yeah. I will say that I was very naive when thinking about how much those intersectional parts of my identity mattered yes. back then. Yes. I was so naive and so optimistic about things that I thought, well, none of those things will matter because, you know, either people's talent will speak for itself or their ability will speak for themselves. And if you work hard enough, you can do anything, get anywhere. Sure. And while I haven't lost that spirit, I've seen structurally how identity and culture um, and income and, you know, all these other parts of who people are and their life path can be limiting. Totally. Um, and I realized how much privilege I grew up with as well. Um, yes, I was a child of refugees. Yes, I am a woman of color in the States. Um, and, you know, at the same time, I grew up in a very loving family with parents who are still together. I have a college degree and I have higher education degrees, plural. Um, and I've, you know, been able to... You know, while it was hard to figure out what my career path was, I've had the flexibility and the privilege of moving around mm -hmm. comfortably. And that's not the case um, for everyone who fits my description. Um, and so I think now the current version of me is more aware of that, mm. reflective of my own privilege, but also aware of where people assume things about me simply because um, of those different parts of who I am. Sure. You know, like sure. people underestimate me in certain contexts because I'm a woman. I've had instances where people who have just met me for the first time because I'm Asian American compliment me on my English. Um, mm -hmm. And that's, that's right. super offensive, by the way. That's like bullshit, I just, by the way. It is. Yeah. And uh, this was a job that I had in, I think it was while I was still in college, but... You know, I had spoken to a client on the phone. Right. He had no idea what I looked like. And when he came in um, for a meeting with my boss, the first thing he said to me was, wow, your English is so good. Yeah. And, you know, in my head, I'm like, damn straight it is. Like, I grew up here in California and I'm American. And just that that's happened more than once in a professional context. Um, and I think... The younger version of me kind of brushed it off and ha ha it. But then now, you know, I try to, you know, give more productive feedback That's um, right. as a woman who, you know, has gotten to a certain point in her life where I feel very confident in my professional career and my standing in society where I think it's my responsibility now to yes. actually educate people about where um little microaggressions like that can can build up um and and hinder people in everyday life um yeah I, I don't think that really answers a question directly but i think maybe the bigger takeaway is that i'm much more aware of all of those things now yes 
and uh, to the people that say that type of shit, not only is she fluent in one language, she's fluent in multiple languages. You jive ass turkey, so suck on that. <laughs> uh, you know, I you know, I would be I would be remiss to not admit to my own privileges, right? Like even though I have documented through this podcast a lot of those struggles, and I was very thankful to talk through some of those things with my own brother. The I'm a I'm a man. I am, although I'm a first generation, you know, Vietnamese American, Asian American, you know, I, I also hold a college degree. I work at a university. I, I have access to understanding how systems of power operate and interact while there are things that can always be improved and need to be seriously advocated for and supported in order to make those changes happen. There are many others who are still facing challenges far greater than I. So with that being said, you know, I think it's important for anybody who has attained some of that access is just create a pathway for the people that are coming behind you mm-hmm. and the people that will come long long after you are even aware that you had anything to contribute to it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's about putting the pressure on any one person or any one group, but I think if we make and take some collective action and just own it, and really make that a regular part of who we are, then I think we got a shot, mm-hmm. right? I think, yes, in a, in a larger conversation, we're seeing the tides change a little bit more, a little bit in Hollywood re- with representation. Um, but I think from a, a standard of how people are living, their mental health, the mm-hmm. pressure, double standards, um, and the comfort, I think, which is I, th- I think is a big crux of this conversation today, is the comfort of being amenable to change and adaptation, which I think is not necessarily compatible with a lot of the culture that people of various Asian American backgrounds come come with, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that chart is set for you before you even hit puberty, and you are supposed to just follow that forever and just kind of continue the cycle. That doesn't mean that the parents are wrong. It doesn't mean that the grandparents are wrong or whomever the first uh, population is that comes over to this country. But, you know, how how has it been for your colleagues that you interact through graduate school, through your work around the world when it comes to folks being able to pivot and change in, in ways that you have? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Um, the word that keeps coming to mind as I'm listening to you is resilience. Like yes. we're talking about power and power is subtle. Yes. Like there was a time where we believed that power, we as in maybe society, not right. we as in our generation, you and me, mm-hmm. so specifically to now. But there was a point where I guess conceptually power came from the state or somewhere above in this hierarchical yes. sort of structure. But um, as we've learned from civil rights movement and learned from a lot of um, you know, lots of sociologists and theorists, power is subtle and it can be part of different parts of your identity. It could be collective um, and it can come from, um, it can come laterally, it can come from people around you um, at the grassroots level. And I think that's really important to acknowledge, um, especially when thinking of maybe our parents' generation. Um, in one perspective, they they lost a lot of their power when they had to move from one country to another and start right. over, um, being disadvantaged in terms of their access to language um, and you know, to jobs and to 
a lifestyle that they were very unfamiliar with. Totally. But at the same time, the fact that they were flexible and adaptable made them more resilient. And um, this word is kind of a buzzword in my field at the moment from an academic standpoint. And the word resilience means to be able to withstand and absorb shock. Um, and I think the more adaptable you are and the more you accept that change is the constant, um, the more you can, you're, the more likely you might be to recover and move on towards, you know, some new steady state, some new normal, um, and grow from there. And I think, you know, and I think this concept works at all scales, right? Totally. You can think about it from an individual growth standpoint, the more you are able to be flexible and be resilient, um, you know, just the more um, growth you might be able to experience in a lifetime um, as you look forward. And then it can work at a neighborhood scale or a community scale or a city scale or a state scale. Um, And I, I really think this reframing of how we look at struggle and power um, is helpful. It can also be, you know, imperfect, but um, moving from this this mindset where we diagnose problems um, and realize that that in and of itself is not adequate right. to um, to let's say fixing social ills or addressing them right. to this idea that you know thinking about resilience and the positive kind of countervailing force of how we build capacity is. The direction that things are moving and i think that's really important to acknowledge as well as we focus on more kind of the more positive side of things and the lighter side of things while acknowledging the dark side still exists um and the point is to to counterbalance that as much as we can i absolutely agree you know for the the past decade being so deathly afraid of letting people see who i am in a more easily accessible manner I have learned that people much younger than me, people much older than me, everyone is organizing communities one way or the other, Mm -hmm. right? So even if you perceive a person who is living their best life online and you make a judgment, which I'll be guilty and admit that I've made many judgments in the past, I will be dead wrong when I sit down and I talk to that person. And then Mm -hmm. I find out that they're actually organizing groups and communities and helping and doing all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Now, if I come across many bullshits of assholes along the way. Yes. For Is sure. Everybody who's just trying to do something big on social media an asshole. No. Some people use it as a ma- as a means, as a tool of communication to syndicate information, to make sure that people are aware, people who have more notoriety, more access. I'm seeing more people be willing to be advocates. And mm-hmm. we're not just talking about entertainment celebrities, but people with any kind of following or or influence of some kind. Mm -hmm. And they don't necessarily call themselves an influencer, but they do have influence in their communities, Mm -hmm. in their families, in their jobs, in Mm -hmm. their workplaces. And I am I'm really encouraged by that. You know, Mm -hmm. even though the the things that these these giants have built aren't necessarily there to do social good, I'm seeing a lot of people find really creative, interesting and really fascinating ways of making that happen. Mm-hmm. And my hope is through having conversations like this and, and trying to get as many people to have conversations like this as possible is just a small contribution to that. Mm-hmm. And through your discipline, I am sure that you'll continue to do so as well. I hope so. I, 
Yeah. I think hope is all we got. <laughs> and uh, an educated Ooh. yes based on our experience. Yeah. Um, I went to something called the Natural Hazards Workshop that happens every year in Colorado and a bunch of people who study disasters and have seen the worst of the worst happen right. to people and communities after earthquakes, tsunamis, and great conflict come together and share their work. And we had a great discussion about, you know, on one side of things, what keeps you up at night? Right. And it's the fact that people are still dying, no matter how prepared they are, there are still deaths, right? That's there's, right. There's the, the dark side of things. But then on the other side, like what what keeps you going? What What are reasons that you wake up to keep doing what you're doing, even though it's hard? Right. I think that's worth that's worth acknowledging too. Um, and talking about hope, there's this great book by Rebecca Solnit, who's a poet, novelist, writer, um, who writes about social movements, and her book is called Hope in the Dark. And I think we are living in a time where that's exactly what we need um, and exactly what it feels like we have to work with. Yes. Um, at certain times when you're living with extremism, um, in a lot of different ways, like socially, culturally, um, and in terms of conflict and, and politics. Like it's just, the world is falling apart in many different ways every yes. single day. And it was before, it was before, you know, the recent political shift. Yes. Um, there are people who are living in a lot of countries that, that struggle from a social, political, economic standpoint, but what's, you know, what's the point of simply diagnosing that? That's not enough. What's yes. the pragmatic action that needs to happen? And what what leads you there? It's maintaining and retaining and perpetuating that hope in the dark that makes things continue to happen, even if it's little by little. And I, I don't mean to be in a soapbox. I just, I, I think that having a spiritual grounding is really important in anything that you do, whether it's yes. advocacy or public radio or music or anything like that, um, it's become more and more important to me to have that foundation first before anything else, because that is what drives you. It's what gets you up in the morning. And um, it just, it, it keeps motivating you. And that desire moves so many things. Um, I think I inherently kind of knew this when I was in my 20s and I had a lot more energy and a lot more opportunities open to me as a young person. Um, but I think I've been able to articulate it better in my 30s, which is that as long as you keep wanting to do something, that want isn't going to die. And maybe you will just find a different pathway to get there. Yes. So. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think you're standing on a soapbox at all. I think, you know, for, for everybody that has whatever practice you have in your life, everybody has something that they're contributing, right? Mm -hmm. And whether you recognize that. Uh, let's just take a moment to recognize that whether you are a person that is creative, analytical, research focused, maybe you're not the most sociable, but the interaction you have with that one person throughout your day is what gives them hope, mm -hmm. gives them that energy, gives them that spark. Because mm -hmm. perhaps when that person goes home, nobody talks to them. Maybe they don't want to talk to anybody because they're not accustomed to that. Are you saying that researchers are antisocial high? <laughs> I'm speaking from the standpoint of being a wallflower my whole life. Yeah. And now uh, people can't see this in the studio as well, but I'm wearing gym shorts <laughs> that are much shorter than the shorts I wore when I was on a dance team in college. And that's because of fucking positive body image because I got drumsticks and I'm proud of it. But that being said, it's 
coming out of your shell, whatever that looks like, mm-hmm. and finding ways to to just exist along with other people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think that's that in and of itself is a triumph if you can figure out a way to live in a way that aligns with all of those values, mm-hmm. right? And as long as people don't turn a blind eye to when egregious things happen and they're willing to rally together because they have a stake in it, and then I think it's okay to have a stake in it in order to do the thing that will propel you to want to commit to something, then I think we got a shot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's all I want is for people to, to feel like they can be comfortable in their own skin and to say, this shit matters to me for these reasons. And even if it doesn't seem like the most selfless thing in the world or the most glamorous or the most magnanimous, you know, goal or objective, even if it's just to get better at one thing mm-hmm. so that you can accomplish this this measurable goal rather than this thing that that is so unobtainable that you know just talking about it gives you that that momentary high that you're doing the greater good but you can't always see what the progress is that you're making Um, I think that's okay too you know I think there's something really beautiful about the normalness of everyday life which I used to really be scared of Mm -hmm. and a lot of that's just informed by hey it took superhuman sacrifice and resilience to your point to get here we have no idea how many people have died trying to come to this country Mm -hmm. for any place for more opportunity Mm -hmm. and we have all been witness to the pain the suffering and the anguish of people and also their ability to rise up and survive and then also find these little pockets of happiness and so when it's your turn to stand up and take responsibility not only for your life, but perhaps the lives of others, I think it could become very scary to not know exactly what you're going to do with that limited amount of time you have on this earth. Mm -hmm. So with all of that being said, I'm on my fifth or sixth career. I can't even fucking keep track anymore. (laughs) You've lived many lives, and I guarantee you, when we're 40-something, you're going to have much more to add on to this. We'll do another um, podcast in 10 years. I remember, um, <laughs> I think we're talking about Joni Mitchell in, in, in uh, Probably. In DC. Yeah. I was obsessed with her. Yeah. And, you know, you'll have a Joni Mitchell collection of life songs and all of that. And then I'll be incoherent and mumbling like Bob Dylan in my 40s. <laughs> and it'll be a moment. And there will be so much more life that that there is to have lived. Right. And I think the important thing is that we were grounded in why we were doing it and mm-hmm. who we were showing up for. Yeah. Which includes ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's ultimately what we're all trying to do is totally. just find more ways to be ourselves and letting go of the fear of just truly being you. Fucking terrifying. It is terrifying. Yeah. But what is terrifying about it? Is it people finding out who you really are or is it that we won't be accepted or that we won't matter? Yeah. Um. All of it. Yeah. I just... I remember being so afraid in my 20s, but now that I'm here, I just don't understand why I was. I do and I don't, you know what I mean? Yes, Because I've become more of who I am and it wasn't that scary um, in the ways that I thought it might be. It was scary in other ways. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It's it's all a journey. It's really funny. You know, I I think on an ending note, what I really love about being older now is that even though it's way harder to get in shape and it's so much harder (laughs) to get out of bed and stay up longer (laughs) is that it's I'm aware that I should be feeling shame or embarrassment. What? No. Says who? About about many things that I do now. But (laughs) I love 
like wearing these shorts out of the house. But it's, No, just own it, man. But that's what I'm saying is that at this age, I feel good about owning it. But in yes. my 20s, you could have never convinced me to own it. Sure. You get what I'm saying? I do. And it's and it's because I can look back on the previous decade and say, what, how much time did I waste for all of that fear? Mm-hmm. And now that I have, and then I look at, you know, a lot of wise mentors younger than me, older than me, um, and they're just, they don't age in the way that we perceive age where you just kind of clam up. They just keep on existing in such mm-hmm. a, bright and exuberant way and I, I love that yeah so now it's while acknowledging that subconsciously I may feel fear or embarrassment or that I won't fucking matter right that the only people that listen to this are my friends and that's okay is that you know I I can acknowledge that and then just push myself to be a little bit more fierce a little bit more resilient a little mm-hmm. bit more you know flamboyant in the manner in which I carry myself because I believe that I want to represent that more, you mm-hmm. know, and and that's really, uh, really giving me peace now. So yeah. I, I'm really excited to see where your journey will take you next. Thank you so much. Yeah. So this is the, the moment where you can plug anything that you like. What would you like people to learn more about? Well, we haven't gotten to this point in the conversation, but I just I only want to do a quick plug um, about the fact that I'm releasing new music soon. Please. Um, it's in the interwebs. Yeah. I have my third album coming out sometime this month, whenever yeah. the Spotify gods deem it worthy for a release. That's right. Um, so the website is lilybmusic.com, L-I-L-Y-B-E-E music.com. I'm super excited about this because it comes from a very personal place. It's just five songs. Um, the tagline that I came up with is that it's a tiny album for big feelings. Went through a really big breakup, um, closed a lot of chapters at the same time, and wrote a few songs about coping. Um, Each song represents a different part of the cycle of grief. Right. Starting with denial, and then anger, and then depression, bargaining, and finally acceptance. Mm -hmm. I think it resonates with a lot of things that maybe just anyone um, could be going through right now, but particularly... Um, maybe in our age group as we become more self-aware and more reflective and we've just made more mistakes, as you said. Um, and I hope it finds an audience somewhere. And I, I didn't do it to, to reach thousands of people. I'd be happy if it reached 10 and, you know, made a difference somehow in, in somebody's day. So that's coming at some point. Whenever the, spot is, <laughs> whenever the Spotify gods let it, let it loose into the world, um, but you can find it on that website. Very good. Well, thank you very much, my friend, for giving us your time, your intention, and your stories. Thank you. Hi. This is such a pleasure and an honor to to talk about the last decade with you. Yes. Let's see what happens in the next decade. I think I won't need to dye my hair anymore for it to be gray. <laughs> but let's uh, hope that there's still something left in my head by the next decade. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to my buddy Dave Jai Lee for providing the tunes, my buddy Jackie Cow for the wonderful artwork and once again my guest lily Bowie, for her time and check out that music coming soon to spotify whenever the gods deem it appropriate we'll see you next time